before the, uh, the meeting here started, um, Bill came up and, and almost apologized. Uh, you know, our music leaders here do a great job of, of, of matching the music and the worship emphasis with the message. And this one being about the Christian in politics uh, presented a bit of a problem. Uh, but it gave me just a thought about a sense of perspective uh, and maybe a sense of proportion here. You know, this is not the most important thing in the world. It's certainly not as important as our worship of the Lord. It's, it's not as important as, you know, blessing kids in other nations. Certainly not as important as encouraging the Robotish family uh, at this hour. Uh, but it's not an issue that's unimportant either. And we just need to kind of put it in its right place and try to gain uh, some insight here. You know, last week, Mike kind of said, he, you know, he kind of said maybe his message wasn't fully prepared. I thought he did a great job. You might just double that this week. It's been a busy week. Uh, and uh, so I'm not sure what's, what we're going to get today, but I, hopefully at least some nuggets of how to look at this whole issue of, of uh, the Christian in politics. Uh, so let's kind of get into this. You know, I don't think there's any verse that says this, but it's, the government is considered by most to be one of the divine institutions you know, along with the church and marriage, and some consider uh, uh, in, in employers to be in that category as well. Um, and what we understand from the scriptures is that rulers are ministers of God. You know, governors and kings and princes. And and First uh, Peter 2 tells us that we are to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as one into a, in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So we're to obey the government as Christians. And uh, at the same time, we as believers believe the government to accomplish certain, not all, but certain functions. Uh, Proverbs 11 tells us, By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. So, you know, there is a sense in which, you know, government should be participatory so that believers can influence the state uh, to conform to, as best we can, to God's will for our nation as a social institution. The Bible really doesn't point out any specific form of government that it requires. There are some, you know, who in, the, in, in Christendom that who call for a certain form, and, you know, and of course they get, they get called, you know, theocrats, you know, that, uh, and we're really not going to deal with that today. There probably are some principles that, that would be more in conformance with the scriptures that can apply to government, uh, and, and in certain forms of government than in others. And I think uh, uh, as the founders envisioned our nation, you know, we have tried to conform to those, and there are others that totally ignore the concept of, of individual liberty and responsibility 
and put that power in the state. And, and, and our country has been blessed to avoid some of those problems. Uh, the other thing we've got to recognize is that, you know, God is really in control, and he works through rulers, sometimes evil rulers, sometimes men who are excessively powerful, you know, Nebuchadnezzar and Ahasuerus are a couple of examples. Uh, are there biblical principles that can be applied and, you know, perhaps even taken into account when, you know, we go into the voting booth in a little bit over a week? Everybody here wants some more political ads. Wouldn't that be exciting? Or are you ready for it to be over? Well, I don't know, but this may be an historic time. Uh, it may be a time when we, and everybody says that every year, every election cycle, this is the most important election that we've ever had. And, and of course, that's been said this time. But it, this time it might be. Um, Let's try to at least take a look at some of the issues, some of the, the principles. Uh, America's founders understood two aspects about human nature. Man is both, one, fallen, and two, created in God's image. Now, those are two key points. Uh, human government is necessary because of the fall, because of man's sinful nature. It was James Madison that said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. So, government is supposed to protect its citizens from sin and, and sinful desires. But we also know, as believers, that government has a tendency to corrupt um, therefore, our plan, anyway, in, in our country is to disperse that power. Because uh, we've got to ask, who's going to protect us you know, from sinful rulers? In the U.S., we have a system of checks and balances so that none of the three branches of government are supposed to have unbridled power. Uh, and that power should not come down to, you know, uh, a select few or a king. Uh, be, and secondly, because Christians believe that man is created in the image of God, we see man as valuable, having an inherent value. Christ died for all of us. That shows our value. Uh, each individual has rights only because God, ha God gave us a moral standard. Our Declaration of Independence says this, and this is a familiar phrase you've all heard, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their, their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Okay? Now, that implies, one, a creator, and two, that creator is the foundation or source of all human rights. That's why they call them inalienable rights. Um, to alienate means to take away. You know, you know what an alien is. It's somebody who's from away from here. Uh, so in, 
An inalienable right is something that cannot be taken away from you because there, it was given to you by a power above which there is none. Uh, and, and there's a whole debate we could get into about what's the difference between inalienable rights and what we all hear today is civil rights. Okay? Now, of course, to deal with the day-to-day the, the -day machinations of government, you've got to be able to make laws, but what we have found is that we have come up with one civil right after another, some of, whom, some of which we would agree with, because they flow from these inalienable rights, like, you know, to abolish slavery. Others, people, particularly our courts, have come up with, which we can't because, like, the right to choose to end the life of a human being in your body, is it conflicts with the inalienable right to life. But yet, it is now a civil right. Uh, so that's the danger of, of civil rights, is that there's, there's no control. There's no guideline for them. But we do recognize inalienable rights. And uh, uh, that all takes us back to our previous discussions about trying to make God the issue. So what is the purpose of government? Uh, you know, I can say, they probably say this in a number of different ways, but... You know, one is to protect those inalienable rights from man's sinful tendencies. In other words, to restrain evil. The uh, Bible says, you know, if man sheds man's blood, man's blood will be shed in recompense. Uh, in Romans 13, you know, government is, or ministers, uh, government, government rulers are ministers of God uh, as a terror to evil, not good. Uh, and we all know that the, the nature of justice is rendering to each his due according to a standard, a right standard, and government should concentrate on enforcing justice or, or uh, dispensing justice, not on the business of other institutions. And what are those other institutions we've mentioned? Well, the church is one. And the purpose of the church government, if you will, is to manifest God's grace on earth. And another one is the family. Uh, the family is to manifest God's community, creativity, and procreativity. Uh, therefore, government should not, should not be an institution of grace, community, or creativity. It should not interfere with religion, except when it is, that religion is truly dangerous, or attempt to administer grace through tax-funded handouts, control family size, uh, interfering in raising children. Uh, uh, government has a role, and it should allow the other God-ordained institutions the freedom to perform their roles. We're talking about general principles now, all of which are being encroached upon, uh, and that's what we need to, to guard against. Now, why does government have a tendency to overstep its territory, pretty clearly because of its raw power to tax and spend, you know, not to mention to enforce, coerce, and punish. Uh, but also because, you know, maybe even some of our friends, you know, right-headed but wrong-hearted folks who want to help God out. So 
I realize I'm saying something radical here, but I think in a, in a wonderfully, maybe not a perfect, but a wonderful world, you know, the church would be the one helping people. It would administrate the system that we now call welfare. And it would be done with a measure of accountability. The government wouldn't really be in that business. Of course, there are many who would strenuously disagree with me on that. But uh, if that were the case, how strong would the church be? Uh, uh, Chuck Colson said, once you excise or take belief in God out, you are left with only two principles, the individual and the state, except that in that situation, there is no mediating structure uh, to generate moral values and therefore no counterbalance to the inevitable ambitions of the state. The state's going to win over the individual every single time. And without God, without his standards there, it's unbridled power. William Penn said many years ago, if we are not governed by God, wealth will be ruled by tyrants. Uh, and that's that whole concept of when we started our country, it was based upon liberty. But if you have no reign on liberty, it becomes license, and pretty soon, in order to regain control of a chaotic situation, we end up with... Uh, tyranny in response to anarchy. Uh, and so what kinds of things are happening today? Well, obviously terrorism. Uh, we've got snipers, you know, shooting people at will around the country from time to time. Uh, and that results in calls for gun control, and, you know, that's a constitutional issue in itself. It also in calls for you know, measures to invade the privacy of citizens. And so you get into this debate in Congress and other places about whether, what we should be doing to control these, these uh, serious problems. To become almost uh, current, uh, our Joe Biden, our, uh, the Democratic uh, candidate for vice president, said within the last uh, several days in a seemingly prophetic statement, here, here's a quote, Mark my words, it will not be six months before the world tests Barack Obama like they did John Kennedy. The world is looking. Watch. We're going to have an international crisis, a generated crisis, to test the mettle of this guy, unquote. Okay? Well, that's assuming he wins. But, uh, you know... For those of you who are young, John Kennedy was challenged early in his administration back in the 60s with the Soviet Union placing missiles in Cuba just off our coast, which could easily reach many of our large cities, and they negotiated a settlement of that, among which was we agreed never to invade Cuba. And we did some other diplomatic things and, and got them to back down. Uh, and But then... Mr. Biden, Senator Biden, goes on and says this. Uh, the President Obama's first response to this challenge may not seem at the time to be the right one, but he does know how to deal with such challenges. What does that mean? I mean 
what kind of response would not seem to be the right one? I mean, it could be a number of things, but why would you intentionally say that before the fact? How does Biden know? It's spooky. It's spooky, I've got to admit to you, to me. Uh, now, what kind of response are we sometimes called to give? You know, many call for the church to rise up and exert its political muscle. You know, pastors and church leaders are called upon to direct their flocks in political action and elections and that sort of thing. On the other hand, many churches refused to get involved, even to mention things political, uh, because that's outside the realm of Christendom. It's even may even be considered evil. Uh, well, let's take a look at that, some of the dynamics of that. You know, we do have, as we just mentioned, some that would be considered separatists in the church-state issue. Uh, some people just give up, and they say, you know, uh, we live in a pluralistic society, you know, where we at least have the, you know, the, the free market of ideas, but we're moving rapidly to pluralism where all ideas are equal, and I just don't want to mess with it because I, you know, I can't respond to all that stuff. So they just give up. And other people are functional separatists. You know, they, they consider the system so corrupt, they just don't want to get dirty by it. They just want to stay away from it. Others point out the secular-sacred uh, dichotomy. You know, and they say, they, they look to Scripture and they say in 1 John 2, it says, love not the world, neither the things that are, that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In chapter 5, it says, the, world, the whole world lies in wickedness. Uh, in James 1, pure religion is, among other things, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. In James 4, you adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Well, from this, we might conclude that Christians should not get involved in these issues of politics. On the other hand, we've got activists in the church, and we all know some, and they point out that America has a special covenant relationship with God, or that we have this moral and cultural change, you know, needs to occur through the political process. And God doesn't God call us to be salt and light? And so the, the church has a mission to transform the culture through the political process. Uh, they point out in Proverbs, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked man rules, the people groan. And from this, we might conclude that Christians must be involved in politics. Well, you know, what can we do? How can we figure this out? What are some of the principles? Uh, well, let's first recognize where we're coming from. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would be handed over to the Jews. So I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. As he was responding to Pilate. And then again, in John 19, Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason... He who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So, you know, you, you get the clear understanding that God's in control, not the rulers. Uh, he's kind of above all that. Then we hear in, in the 
you know, the, the account of when we talked earlier about where the, the religious leaders were trying to trick Jesus with the, you know, uh, the question about taxes to Caesar. And he responded, look, you know, look at your coin, whose image is that? Render under Caesar what is Caesar's, under God what is God's. I think that helps us understand maybe the balance. Because as believers, we have dual citizenship. We are citizens of God's kingdom, and we're also citizens of the world. You know, we cannot disclaim either. The classic passage dealing with the relationship of uh, the believer and government is Romans 13. I'm just going to read the first few verses. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do you do what is good, and you will have the praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And then finally, the next verse says, Owe no man anything except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So while human government is ordained by God to restrain evil, governors, rulers are servants, ministers of God. And while government and laws do influence cultural standards and morality, government and law, government and law cannot transform the culture. They can only restrain evil. So what, what's the response to that? Well, Jesus said, as he was about to ascend, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We, as members of the body of Christ, not government, are ordained by God to go teach and make disciples. Um, practical application. Um, the way that I look at this, because I, I have friends on both sides, and uh, I think it's important to, uh, to try to take a balanced perspective on this. Uh, we should let the church be the church and not a political action committee. Okay? First uh, Timothy 2 says, First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, 
who desires all men to be saved, even Democrats. Uh, didn't say that, but I had that. Uh, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, we are to pray for our government leaders, including those with whom we have serious disagreement with. That is one of the most important things that we can do. And like it or not, and we may not like it come a week from Tuesday, you know, we will have leaders with whom we have serious differences. I, I can almost guarantee that, because that's already the case. I don't know which ones they'll be, but there's always somebody we can pray for and lift up, and we have no idea how influential we can be through those prayers. Um, you know, in, uh, in Acts 2, one of those passages that talks about the early church and what they did, you know, they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. Uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all scriptures inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped to every good work. In Hebrews 4, the author says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrows and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Why am I referring to all these? Well, because I think that it is, besides praying for our leaders, one of the things that believers in the church should be doing is preaching and teaching what the Bible says about the important issues of the day. We should not avoid hard questions just to keep the peace or to just to keep the pews filled. Um, we have a duty to inform the members of the body uh, on a biblical worldview on those issues so that then those members of the body can receive that information, that instruction, that encouragement, and make up their own minds, whether it's what they, what they say about a particular issue to their congressman or their legislator, or how they vote. Um, in John 17, Jesus prayed, I have given my disciples your word, and the world hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. However... I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. You know, we're here. You know, are we so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good? We need to participate uh, in the process, certainly. And one of the ways we do that is we model, as believers, through the instruction we receive through teaching in the church, we model the principles of God's Word to those who live out there, to those outside the church. That's one of the best ways that we can influence the culture. Romans 12 says, Be not conformed to the world. Pretty clear. You know, if we're Christians, we should not be doing and saying and acting like everybody in the world. There should be a difference, a distinction. However, 
be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can prove what is that good and acceptable will of God. So if we are transformed, it should make a difference, particularly in some of the issues of the day. Uh, so what we have seen in terms of some of the issues, like the sanctity of life and the taking of innocent human life in the womb, we've seen the development of crisis pregnancy centers like Lion and Lamb supports here. Uh, on the issue of poverty and welfare, you know, we've seen responses like the Topeka Rescue Mission, Topeka Rescue Mission, which you know Lion and Lamb supports as well. All of you support. You know, we've talked about the issue of. of uh, of homosexuality and how we should not be on the side that says, yes, you're great, nor on the side that says, you know, fags will burn in hell. We should be there reaching out to those people and telling them about the truth in love. Um, in the family and, and marital issues and that sort of thing, the church has historically provided counseling and parenting, you know, uh, courses and examples you know, to help reconstitute the family, which is, frankly, in danger today. Uh, and just the whole issue of lawlessness. Uh, we influence culture through upholding godly principles and character. In any, any chance we get, we should be doing that. And that's how we can be transformed, by renewing our own minds first and then living out the acceptable will of God in front of other people. Uh, we should not expect the government to achieve what only the church can accomplish. You know, uh, we cannot transform the culture through laws and our Congress or Supreme Court, our governor, legislator. Yeah, they have an effect, definitely. That's the balance of the whole thing. But, you know, uh, Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 3, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives, gives life. And that may be a more specific application that was intended there, but I believe it's true also when we deal with law. You know, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but there are three ways. I, you know, one wise man told me one time to influence culture. One is the least effective is through law, the letter. You know, the middle one is through the, you know, just the marketplace of good ideas, just to get out there and... and provide good ideas, and in some cases, that's the best that we've got because of the secularization of our culture. The most effective way to influence culture is, frankly, through evangelism. This came from a dean of a law school that told me this. That's the most effective way, is through the one-on-one -on -one contact that we have with people to reach people's hearts. Once we reach people's hearts, then we've got an opportunity to pull them to the right side of all the political issues. Um, so, Kind of in uh, conclusion here, I wanted to say that, um, well, let me, one, one other point. We should not expect the church to accomplish what individuals should be doing, like informing others, you know, about the issues and about the candidates and that sort of thing. You know, individuals as believers must be in the world in order to be a witness uh, through their lives. Uh, and, you know, and if you're not sure what to do on election day, you know, there's lots of people around who you can talk to about it. Uh, you know, if there's any, has, any, any question at all about the presidential election, if you go to wallbuilders.com, they don't tell you who to vote for. They give you a side-by-side -side comparison on all the major issues, and believe me, it is 
clear, at least in my opinion, it's clear. If you look at the issues and the stances, okay, uh, and, and, you know, there's lots of organizations out there who have voters' guides and endorsements and that sort of thing. Uh, you can find out. Don't say, I didn't vote because I didn't know who to vote for. That's not an excuse. Please, that is one of your duties as, as a citizen of the world and, I believe, as a citizen of God's kingdom. Finally, to my friends, the activists, uh, we, please don't demand your calling to be the church's calling. Uh, every member has a distinct role, and not all of us can, can go to all the rallies and all the seminars and do everything. And you know, it's pretty clear you're not going to go to all those things. I've seen the turnout in some of those things, and, and uh, uh, we can't all, we, and we won't all, share the same view on every issue. To the separatists, I'd say don't expect others to fulfill your dual citizenship requirements. Uh, We as believers have a duty to be informed and to inform others as best we can. Uh, Now, finally, uh, I received a a message uh, through a thing called Zanga. Anybody know what that is? Anybody under 30 probably does. Okay. Um, Anyway, it came from a a young man that uh, I appreciate. His name is Austin Matthew Vincent. Just a few days ago. He said this. As the election draws closer and closer and the economy continues to take us on a sickening roller coaster ride, it is difficult not to worry or give in to fear. But, not, but God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7 I will not lie. I do have concerns about what the future holds. It is a very uncertain time we live in. But has there ever been a time when people did not wonder and speculate about future with all sorts of negative forecasts? The fact has brought me great peace and comfort over the past month or so. And that will continue to carry me through the elections and whatever follows is the fact that my God is bigger than all the world's problems. In fact, He is big enough to handle them and never lose me or my loved ones in the process. By His grace, I will cling to that promise. Rest, my friends, and do not worry. Do your part to engage the culture for Christ, but do not worry. God is not surprised by anything that is happening today or by the things that are yet to happen tomorrow or next week or next year. He is on His throne. Have confidence in that fact and rest in Him. Please join me. Father, we give our praises to you and to you above all else. And Father, we recognize that your word, your will, and your ways are what we seek and what we need as a nation, as a state, as a city, as a church, as families, as individuals. Lord God, we 
understand our responsibilities as citizens of this world uh, and as citizens of your kingdom as well. But we don't always carry out those duties. We pray, Lord, that you would prompt us to be good citizens, to follow you, to speak the truth in love, and to never worry. Because we know, Lord, that no matter what happens, you are in control. And Lord, that gives us more security than we could have from any government, from any man, from anything else. Father, thank you for the assembly of the saints here and thank you for the love that they show and have shown and will continue to show one another. And we just praise you, Lord, most of all for the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for each one of us because of your love. It's in his name we pray. Amen.